So here's my question for this morning. Uh, I'd like to get you thinking and ask something of you. Does anyone love to see old, broken things being restored and brought back to new again? Old things that had a beauty of their own in a way, but they've fallen in disrepair. Anyone else like me? Uh, you know, we, we see people who restore cars, and it's such an amazing skill. People who restore houses. Uh, all the work we're doing next door to restore, quite frankly, a very ugly building that is not, was not very pleasing, but now becomes something new and fresh and, and has life in it, which kind of signifies what the Lord has done in this, this body. Um, Cecil and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. The joy that we, we have in taking something old and making it new again, using our hands to put a new face or a new structure in something that has seen its better days. And that's because we're made in the image of our Creator, who created all things, and He put within us the ability and desire to create, to see things look beautiful, because He makes things beautiful. That desire is implanted within us to see restoration. That which is old become new. That which is ugly become beautiful. That which is lifeless to be life-giving. And so this morning, we're going to see one of those accounts that shows this in a mighty way. Jesus healing the man with the shriveled hand. And so this is something that if you've been in the church for a while, like many of these stories, you can read over them, but don't lose the awesome nature of what God is doing here. Don't lose the amazing power of Jesus to heal and restore. Because none of you have ever seen someone in front of you at a hand that doesn't work come back to life and work again. You have never seen that. Hollywood spends millions of dollars to make things look like that. But we serve a God who took on flesh and shows us little glimpses of his power in the miraculous. So in this story, we're going to see a man whose hand is restored. We're going to see physical restoration supernaturally making the lifeless come to life. But there is a more important reconciliation that we're going to see this morning. The reconciliation between holy God and sinful man. This withered hand is a shadow of what has been withered and dead in the fall. Lifeless, useless. The old becoming new. This is a beautiful gospel restoration we're going to see this morning. The old being slavery to sin. Useless before God. The new having freedom in Christ. Being able to use, to, being used to glorify Him. And we're going to see this morning the love of our God. This is how loving our God is. Knowing our sinfulness. Knowing our brokenness. Sending His Son to take on flesh, to give eternal life for whoever would believe in Him. This is real restoration. That which could not be restored, not be made new any other way by man who is God in the flesh. Using the very power that created the universe and spoke it into existence to restore that which is broken. This should give us yet another reason to put our trust in Him. 
and know who we serve. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Mark chapter 3. But I'm actually going to be, begin reading at the end of chapter 2. I won't be on the screen because you should have your Bibles open in front of you. I'll give you time. Um, because the last few verses of last week sets us up for this week. So Mark 2, 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Heavenly Father, Holy God, high and lifted up, let your name be revered above all other names. May your glory be magnified by every tongue tribe, and nation. May your people boldly proclaim the message of restoration, of reconciliation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, may you search hard hearts. May you convict willful, sinful hatred. May you open eyes and restore hearts that they can respond in faith and be healed. Lord, I ask this morning that your Spirit would teach us from your Word. Spiritual things to those who are spiritual. In a language that I can't begin to understand. None of my words hold any power in and of themselves. Anything I say here this morning can only be effective if the Holy Spirit accomplishes the purpose of your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would point us to Christ. That you, our Heavenly Father, would be glorified. Your people would be sanctified. And your good news would go out from this building into the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's recap where we've been the last couple weeks. So, two weeks ago, we looked at new wine. This is the age of new wine. Not the old wineskins of the Pharisees that is bitter and sour. The new wine that is held by new wineskins, the time of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the restoration of all things. Jesus begins His ministry with the turning water into wine at the uh, wedding at Cana. He continues his ministry by showing them new wine, the good stuff, a glimpse of his kingdom. 
We look forward to the wine that we will drink with Him in His kingdom when He restores all things. He's also the Lord of new garments, as as Paul tells us. We take off the old and put on the new. This is what Jesus is calling people to. The old, the old letter of the law that kills, that cannot give life. But He, life Himself, is standing before them and He is calling them to repentance, to turn from the old and turn to the new. And one of those, those areas is the center of the Jewish week. The center, the center of Hebrew life began on the last day. Sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Everything stopped. Everything became a focus on the Lord, a stop from your secular pursuits to pursue what is glorifying to God. But this is exactly where Israel had gone astray. They made the Sabbath into something that was for personal pleasure not for glorifying God and caring for one another. And Jesus makes this divine declaration at the end of chapter 2. So the Son is man, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And as we said last week, the way this is structured in the Greek, Lord is the Son of Man even over the Sabbath. The emphasis is on who is Lord. The Master The one with power and authority over the day that you have distorted. So this sets us up really well because we find ourselves in another Sabbath, in another synagogue, in another situation that is like the others. The burdens that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have placed on the people that are undue and and in addition to Scripture. So let's pick up where we are in the beginning of chapter 3. And again, he entered the synagogue... And a man was there with a withered hand. So here we get the the setting. What's going on here? Just something simple. Jesus walks in a synagogue and there's a guy there. But I love how Mark peels back the layers and there's so much going on here. So the first thing we need to know is that Jesus did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And as a fulfiller of the law, he kept the Sabbath. As an observant Hebrew man, he would join his other brothers for worship for instruction, for fellowship, for direction in the word of the Lord. And he did this so the Lord could use him in the synagogues and to set that example of what the Sabbath is made for. But not everyone approached the Sabbath as Jesus did. And so the second thing is he comes across a man with a withered hand, uh, kind of shriveled. We don't really know what this means. In case you're really wondering, um, Luke tells us that it's the right hand. Not that it makes a difference, but Luke down to the detail we don't know we know there's something wrong with this guy there's something that's visibly noticeable and as we're going to see in this this next verse that everyone notices look at verse two and they watched jesus to see whether he would heal him on the sabbath so the first thing we need to see here they referring to we'll see at the end of this the pharisees they watched him so this this word is it's not just they they saw him out of the corner of their eye they watched him closely, intently. They, they, they scanned the room. They were so focused, fixated on him that he became the object of their attention. Their eyes were glued to him. And this is not because, look at the amazing things this guy has done. Look at the authority that he is taught with. They were not in awe of who he is, but they had a purpose in why they watched him. They watched him closely so that they might accuse him. So instead of coming to worship the Lord, instead of 
praising God and giving glory to Him, Jesus as their enemy now becomes their focus. They become distracted, hearts set on destruction. And the first thing I want us to think about, it is so easy, let's just be honest, for every one of us, it is easy to walk in here this morning and be distracted. It is easier to walk in this morning and look at the person who's dressed kind of funny or someone who's doing something that you wouldn't do or be so worried about something on the periphery. Be careful as we look at this passage because the Pharisees are at fault here. Absolutely. We're going to make sure that when we come into the house of the Lord with the people of God, our focus is on Him. That He be glorified. That our energies are, are, are not spent picking one another apart. Just want to throw that out there. But their focus is very clear here. So that they might accuse him. The hypocrisy in this men, in, in these men is incredible. They're waiting for him to do something good that they may accuse him of evil. Their own wicked hearts are exposing them. In the Sabbath. The day where God is to be praised, they can't help but think about themselves. As we've looked at last week, we spent a lot of time, and we won't do that this morning, a lot of time on all of the additional burdens that they added to them. 39 additional works that they classified to Jews who would offend them. Walking, helping, healing. All these things were added unto the law by the the uh, Jewish keepers of the law. And unless this man's life depended on it, in their eyes it was a violation of the Sabbath if he healed them. And they couldn't wait. They were chomping at the bit. Like a stake before wolves, they could not wait to attack him. But the interesting thing here, they knew what he was capable of. They knew that he could heal. They knew his power. They should know that this could only come from God. But in their hearts, all they could focus on was how much they hated him. This is the heart of man without Christ. It is against Christ. It cannot help itself. Apart from the grace of God, this is our natural state. And apart from the common grace of God, they would get their wish every time and we would all be destroyed. God's grace in saving, God's grace in sustaining, that they sit back and they plot to themselves. But if you think this is just the Pharisees, think again. If you follow Christ, the world we live in, Jesus warned us against the world. We, we, we prayed this morning, praying for our country, praying for all the nations. But we're seeing unrestricted, unbridled evil, celebrated evil. This is, this is man with the governor off. This world that we live in, if you follow Christ, they're thinking the same thing. I want to watch them do something that I disagree with. I can't wait to pounce on them. They're waiting to accuse Christians. And if you think you'd be exempt, think again. You will be exempt if no one knows you're a Christian, if you never speak about Christ, if you never live in a way that glorifies Christ, you'll be fine. But if you walk as Jesus did, 
Do you walk as the apostles did, proclaiming his name, loving people in the name of Christ, calling them to repent and believe? They will look at you the way the Pharisees looked at our master. Jesus said, how do you expect to be treated any differently? Because in our world, the world we live in today, you can kill babies, you can burn down cities, you can tell a young boy that he can become a girl. But don't you dare disagree with me. Don't you dare tell me it's sin, and don't you dare point me to Jesus. I get an amen? That is the world we live in. But it is no different than the world that Jesus lived in. No different than the world that the apostles lived in, or Augustine lived in, or Luther, or any other believer in history. The world is just better at putting on a mask in some eras than others. But know that this is what we face, and this is not unique to Jesus, because if we bear his name, if his spirit is within us, this is how his enemies see us. This is what spiritual warfare looks like, and and Mark dissects this. So let's pick up again in verse 3. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. This in the Greek is literally, I look for a translation, none of them really get this right. This is literally, come up into the middle. So if you remember what we, uh, and Trey, you don't have to keep bringing those, those verses up. People have their Bibles open. You, you people have your Bibles open. Um, so if, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the, the, the synagogue worship, and so what it was is usually some kind of a, a hall. Uh, they would have stadium seating where the men would, would, would come in and uh, sit either in a line or uh, sometimes around the, around the room. They didn't, uh, they didn't have like theater type seating, but they would, they, they would sit they would stand if they, if, if they were reading, and then they would sit down to teach. And usually the teacher would come up from the, the pews or the, or, or the benches and come forward. So what Jesus is, is doing, he stands up and he says, come to the middle. So this guy that everybody saw walk in, that they're waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. Jesus doesn't do this on, on the side apart from the view of everyone. He says, get up, rise up, and come to the middle. I want everyone to see what I'm doing here. You could have heard a pin drop like just now. All of these self-righteous Jewish men, hopefully there were some godly men there too, but waiting, what is this guy going to do? And what does he do? The man is standing there, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He asked a really simple question. But notice what is different about this account versus the last few that we've seen. The last few that we've seen, he's responding to the Pharisees' outright accusations against him or his disciples. Here, he's responding to their thoughts. He's responding to their heart. This is amazing. Because right now they're thinking that their thoughts and intentions are are hidden. And they are fully exposed before the Lord of restoration. And he puts the keepers of the law on the defensive. The most simplest question you could ask. This question does not require a response. Surely you can give the answer to this question. So I'm going to give a little exercise any child can answer this. So, children, I'm going to say children, kids, 10, 11, or, or under. On the Sabbath, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? You, you can shout it out, it's okay. Is it, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? 
We should do, all right, some, somebody's got to be a little more engaged in that. Bubba said Jesus. Yes, Bubba, the answer is always Jesus. But um, <laughs> yes, it's right to do good. So once again, let's try this a little bit better. Is it lawful to save life or to kill? There's some big kids in here. Um, so the point being, every child should know this. Jesus is asking them elementary. This is, this is morality 101. The greatest moral good is to save life. The greatest moral evil is to kill. He brings it to the extreme, and we'll get there in just a moment. But he begs this question, because really what's at play here is this man has a real need. He's asking him, do you have any compassion on your fellow Israelite? What's wrong with this picture that you're plotting against me in your hearts while your, man, while your, your brother is suffering? So I like what Mark, or excuse me, what, what Matthew adds. So Matthew 12, 11 and 12 adds these words. And so you can kind of get Jesus expounding on the question that he asks. And he, he gives us a great application which helps us understand it. Matthew 12, 11 and 12. He says, which one of you, this is the same situation, he asked, um, he, uh, he's responding to their question in, in uh, Matthew's account. But look at verse 11. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? You hypocrites! You would save something that's just a pack animal that you'll eventually eat. And you won't care for a man made in the image of God? And he answers the question for them. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's supposed to do good every day of the week, right? But especially on the day set apart for the Lord. It is good to find rest in the Lord and praise Him and come to worship. But it is also good to care for His sheep. It's also good to care for His sheep who have fallen off the road, who have twisted their ankle, who are hurting or being bit up by, by fleas. Paul tells us at the end of Galatians, do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. Because they are the sheep of our shepherd. The day of the Lord is a day for serving God and serving the ones He loves in the name of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what was supposed to happen. But this is the sad state that Israel's in. And so this is where Jesus confronts them, but there's a beautiful promise in this because so much in the prophets surround the Sabbath. The center of worship. Really, when the prophets talk about the Sabbath, it is not so much the day and the observances. It's the point that your week culminates. The pinnacle of your week is to glorify God and worship Him. Is to come together corporately and love one another. Is to remind yourselves, each other, that you are created by Him and redeemed by Him. And there's also a beautiful promise in that. And that's where it comes home for us. Uh, Isaiah 56 we looked at Isaiah 58 last week. But Isaiah 56 gives a promise, several promises within the Sabbath. So what is the mark of someone who aligns themselves with the Lord? Someone who's not born into Israel. And the foreigners, this is Isaiah 56.6. 6. 
and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these, look at the picture there, to love the name of the Lord, to minister to him, to be his servants, keeping the Sabbath and not profaning it, holding fast to the covenant. This is what it means. This is what is lawful on the Sabbath. But look at the, look at the promise to the foreigners, not those born of Hebrew blood. These I will bring to my holy mountain, Zion, where worship is held. And I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. That is a promise to us. That is what is required of us to love the Lord, to be his, his, his ministers, to serve him, to glorify him. We get to pray. We get to come before him. Our sacrifices are acceptable through Christ. This is what the Sabbath is for us. He will make it joyful for us. This is what the Pharisees missed. They made it arduous, and difficult, and somber. What a beautiful promise. So if you remember last week, again, we spent a lot of time on the Sabbath, but this is a good thing. It's a gift from God. Rest. Rest in Him. Find your joy in Him. Rest from your secular pursuits and have a day that pleases God. As we saw in Isaiah 58, the, the accusations was for those who made it about pleasing themselves, who made it about oppression and self-exaltation instead of exalting God and caring Again, this is what is going on. This is the, the nature of the situation that, that Jesus faces. But this is really the encouragement to his people of, of all times. We can rest in the Lord. We can find our joy in him. We get to pray. We get to gather. We get to worship. We get to serve. These are gifts, not burdens. But yet... As man often does, he takes the gifts of God and makes them burdens, twists them for his own purposes. And so much so that they can't answer a simple question. Is it better to do good or harm? Is it better to save life or kill? Now, so this escalates really quickly. I haven't looked at the second part of this yet. To save life or to kill. Why does Jesus go there? No one's, nothing verbally has been said. But I want you to follow the line of reasoning here. He wants them to consider this in their hearts, to be consistent. Because your intentions will eventually bear you, bear you out. Jesus says, if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. This is what's, what's going on. The logical conclusion to hating and conspiring is murder. He's speaking to people who are plotting murder at this very moment. To save life or to kill, knowing that they have blood on their minds. They are salivating at the idea of putting him to death. On the Sabbath, the day that they have sworn to protect. And he shows them the hypocrisy of their legalism. But look at the condemnation. Not by any actions done, not by any words said. Do you know that you'll be judged by your thoughts and your actions? 
Because it is easy to look religious. It is easy to stand up straight and do all the right things and drive under the speed limit and pay your taxes and all those things that many people consider make themselves good Christians. But do you know that Jesus Christ discerns the thoughts and actions of the mind and heart? Do you know that you'll be judged by your thoughts and your emotions? This is a sobering thought because the man who looked into their eyes and knew them and what they planned is now sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory and knows everything you've ever thought and everything you've ever felt. That is terrifying and it should be. But do you know that? Are you still trying to play the role on the outside? Do you know that that's the standard? How often do you think about that? How sobering that is? Your silence in this room is just like theirs. Pharisees with all the answers, all the self-righteousness have nothing to say at this point. Because the Sunday school answer is too profound for them. They are silent, and I love that Mark includes this detail. But they were silent. Now, how does Jesus respond? And he looked around at them. This is another word. Again, this is not him scanning the room so he can react to what they're going to say. This is a long stare. He looks around at them. He scans the room face by face, person by person. Not so that he can respond to them, but so he makes sure they watch him. Eyes up here. Make sure you're watching what I do right now. This is to get their attention to make no mistake of what he's about to do. He is peering into their soul. And in this verse, Mark uses three words that are very definitive in the Greek, and I want to look at each one of those. But let's look at the verse in in itself. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved, we're going to look at that one, at the hardness of their heart, and said to them, and said said to the man. So let's look at this first one, anger. I'm going to spend the most time on this. this. This word for anger, the same word for wrath. This is a bubbling emotion that comes from inside and becomes visibly noticeable on the outside. He's not just a little frustrated. He is furious. But what's important to note here, in the original language, this is not his sustained state. This is momentary. When he looks, he looks in wrath, but he doesn't stay there. He doesn't dwell on it. More on that in a minute. This is righteous anger. He is rightfully angry at the hard hearts, those who would deny mercy on the Sabbath, those who want to kill on the Sabbath. That is righteous anger. And in this, he shows us what it is like to be angry as a human and not sin. First thing, don't dwell in it. He doesn't fester in it. He doesn't let it build. He doesn't see everything through the lens of his anger. He is rightfully angry. How many of us can say we do that? Before we even go any further, how many of us struggle with anger? How often is our anger truly righteous? Let me give you a little barometer. How often are you angry at what people do to you? How often is your anger selfish? How often do you dwell in your anger? You feed it. You stoke it. Your anger is is fat because it's fed on a buffet of your feelings. And you hold on to it, and you 
color it by how you view other people. That is sinful anger. Are you angry because the things of God have been violated and you want to see it made right? Or are you angry because of how someone made you feel? Or what someone did to you? That is a big difference. Do you even know the difference? Because that is sinful anger when we get upset at what people do to us and it becomes a personal response to someone else's actions. That is not what Jesus is doing here. Very few of us have the control over our anger like, like he did. But I'll take this one step further. Jesus' anger here is loving. This is his love. He shows his love for justice, his love for the broken, his love for a lost sheep who is not whole. This man who would be shamed by all who look at him. This man who would be seen as less than because he does not have two working hands. His love for those affected by the curse, those marred by the effects of sin. It is right to be angry at brokenness and hatred and jealousy. His anger. This is the same anger that He will pour out in wrath when He comes again. The same anger at sin. The same anger at those who want to kill and murder in their hearts who do not have any mercy. His rightful wrath at the anger the sinful anger that seeks to kill and to destroy. Those who will reject Him because they hate Him. The same wrath in the moment that He looked on them will come in full force. Jesus' first coming, He did not come to judge, but to seek and save. He took on flesh that the gospel may be proclaimed, that those who would hear His word would, would repent and turn to Him. In His first coming, we see the initiation of restoration it begins by healing it's accomplished on the cross but he will come again and what was initiated in his first coming will be completed in his second coming and when he comes he again he will come to judge and he will come with righteous wrath and the false god that our culture proclaims cannot be angry god's not angry He's angry that you said that. God is angry at sin always. But He is compassionate and He is loving toward His own. But when He comes back, we will see the full, unbridled force of His wrath. Every heart, every mind that does not submit to Him will see His wrath. The Pharisees saw a glimpse of it. The second thing, for now, we've not seen his full wrath yet, but for now, he is grieved. Now this in the Greek is a continuous action. It is the continuous state. This is what is prevailing within Jesus. He is grieved. He is heartbroken that these men would hate him so much that they would deny this man mercy. He is grieved. He is heartbroken in their coldness and their indifference. This grieves the Lord who requires mercy and not sacrifice. 
who requires grace and not obligation. He is grieved when people care more about being right in their own eyes and fulfilling their own selfish desires than those who are broken and hurting and need of restoration. Because of the third thing, the hardness of their hearts. This is a medical word. The composition of bone. It is dense, it is hard, it is calcified. The hardness of their hearts should make you sad if your heart sounds like that. Someone else's heart sounds like that. There's no life within it. A heart of stone is dead unless it is made new. Unless he turns it into a heart of flesh. And he's grieved because he's looking at dead men. A valley of dry bones. His heart is broken over this man that he has compassion on. There's something deeper going on here. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul explains what is going on here in Israel. I think it brings clarity to dealing with the law, the state of man, the glory of God, and what new life in Christ means. So, 2 Corinthians is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Um, And in this one, he is responding to what happened in the first one. He's seen some growth and restoration after the train wreck that is 1 Corinthians. But, there's some false teaching. Uh, there's some Judaizing that's, that, that it's taking place. And so he wants to right the ship a little bit. So we're going to pick up in verse 3. Uh, and he says, so 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ. Basically, you are proof that our gospel is for real. Look what God has done in you. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, like the hard hearts of the Pharisees, but on the tablets of the human heart, of human hearts. This is real gospel transformation, life on living hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. But hold up. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life paul is referring to the situation that we see with jesus these men who are living by the letter that kills there is no life in the law the law can only point you to a righteous god who can breathe life into you but it also kills because if you try to keep it it will bury you and your self-righteousness will lead you to want to kill others Skipping forward a little bit, I'll pick up in verse 14. So, in the middle, he's, he's dealing with the glory that Moses saw on, on Mount Sinai and how that was great, but there's something even greater, the glory that, that comes through Christ. But here's the admonition to Paul's readers and to us. But their minds were hardened, speaking toward the Jews who saw the power of God on the mountain, just like these Pharisees saw the power of God in Jesus Christ, but their minds were hardened. Because when they read the Old Covenant, meaning the Old Scriptures, 
that same veil remains unlifted, the veil that was over Moses' eyes because he couldn't look directly at God on the mountain because only through Christ is it taken away. This is the situation we find ourselves in. They are hard of hearts. They are veiled by this letter of the law that kills. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, speaking to the church here, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. This is what restoration looks like in Christ. From hard hearts, dead according to the letter of the law. Alive in the spirit of the law because God's glory has shone on them. He has removed the veil and we can look boldly in His face. This is amazing. This is amazing. And only a new heart can respond to Jesus in faith. Only a new heart can respond. And so when He gives this command, I think there's something significant going on here. Getting back to our passage in Mark. So we looked at Jesus' anger his grief, the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, still standing, still waiting to see what's going to happen, stretch out your hand. Gives a command to this man, very firm, very public. Make sure you're watching. Everyone hear me? Stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand. This man, and I think about the situation, we don't understand the other side of this. He's shamed. He's, a, he's being watched. And he could also be uh, accused of violating the Sabbath. There is condemnation waiting for him. If he follows what Jesus says, if, if he allows Jesus to violate the Sabbath, even on his behalf, but he stretches it out in faith. He listens to the call of Jesus, stretch out. Come to me and stretch out. And he does. And he responds because he believes him. He responds because he trusts him. He responds because he knows the power of him. And what Jesus does here is he restores his hand. I want to talk about restoration for a moment. Because as I got at earlier, as we began here, we're going to end here. We love to see things restored. Little things, temporary things, physical things. If we all saw a hand restored right now, we would be amazed. We would be stopped in our tracks. And that is our God. He is the Lord of restoration. He restores hands. But He also has the power to restore disease, deformities, most importantly, death. Because this is the power of the gospel, the restoration that we look to on the cross. Because will God always heal physically? Even if you are healed physically, you will die. Death is batting a thousand. What is so amazing about the cross, the restoration that happened on it, is that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to restore Him to new life restores us to new life in Him. 
That little hand is a small shadow and glimpse of the God who takes things that are lifeless and dead and useless and brings them to new life. That is a small seed of what will happen in a few short years at the cross. People are hurting in our day and age, in every day and age. People are scared. People are looking for answers. They are seeking for something to make them whole because they know inside themselves they are not. You can call it whatever you want. You can dress it however you want, but you are unwhole. No one else may see it, but you know you are a withered hand. They need Jesus. They need the man who can take what is withered and dead and breathe life into it. This is the power of the gospel, to take what is dead and old and make it lifeless, life-giving, or give it life and make it new. Just a small glimpse of that. So it's an important question to ask, even of believers this morning. Do you know this? Do you know that he can restore you? Are you looking for restoration for hurts? heartaches and relationship elsewhere. Jesus brought back a man's hand. Jesus came back from the grave, and yet still we try to find restoration elsewhere. Still we try to look to other things, to find our comfort in temporary fixes. Do you know he doesn't just restore lifeless hands, but lifeless hearts? How often do we go to him? What is greater, that he restores a hand or that he restores a heart? This is a no-brainer. This is the power of the gospel. Jesus does these things just to whet their appetite. Look what I can do. You didn't see nothing yet. How often do we take this for granted? We know these things as Christians. But do we walk in the light of these things? Do we rest in the God who restores? The God who brought us from death to life? Do we rest in the full assurance of our salvation, knowing that even if he doesn't heal me now, even if he doesn't fix this relationship now, even if he doesn't do everything that I think he should and satisfy all my desires, I have full restoration in him when he returns. Wipe away every tear. Bind up the broken. No more sin, no more death. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit, the down payment of what is rightfully ours in Christ. Our inheritance is full restoration. Amen. So when things don't happen the way we think they should, don't worry, don't fret. Know that your identity and your restoration is in Him. Back to our scene here. Imagine the the feeling in this room when all of these self-righteous Pharisees see this man's hand come back to life. This spectacle right in front of them, flying in their faces. I'm defying you and your man-made laws. Now what? 
There was a battle line that has been drawn right in their faces. And how do they respond? What's the result here in verse 6? The Pharisees went out immediately, wasted no time, roadrunner cartoon, you know, dust under their feet. They were out the door. Immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is true hardness of heart. If you can't celebrate that a man is made whole, you are dead. If you can't be amazed at the power of the Lord of Lords on the Sabbath, you are dead. And this is the perfect contrast between righteous anger and sinful anger. Sinful anger is so focused on its anger that it has no room for mercy. It does not care what happens to anyone else. It wants to be justified. Jesus' anger was right for a moment, but he made right after that. Your sinful anger will not allow... You know you have sinful anger if you do not allow another person to be joyful. But righteous anger is loving to do good. Now, who are these Herodians that they're conspiring with? They were followers of Herod the king. Usually not a friend to the Jews. They didn't have a lot in common. Uh, But as Shakespeare says in his play, The Tempest, Misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. That's what's going on here. These two miserable people, one outwardly righteous, one pagan, they both hate Christ. They, they, can agree, they can agree on nothing else but that they hate Christ. But in their misery, they become bedfellows. They become co-conspirators. Not whether or not to destroy him, but how. Look at the word here. They conspire against him how to destroy him. That they want to destroy him, that's already settled. How are we going to do it? How are we going to accomplish this? And so this is one of many breadcrumbs that Mark leaves to the cross. I love that Mark is so intentional along the way to point us to the cross. They're they're, they're all already plotting. This plan is already in the works. And it sets up the way to the cross. This is the, the climax of Mark's gospel. But what happens at the cross, why this is so important, as we mentioned earlier, this is where Jesus' chief work of restoration happens. They must plot against him. They must conspire to destroy him because what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Because on the cross, the sins of every tongue, tribe, and nation, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, has taken on him the full wrath of God poured out on their sins. When he raises to new life, his full righteousness given to them. That is restoration. My sin for his righteousness. I have been made whole in him. And he uses the sinful, willful, murderous hearts of the Pharisees to accomplish his purposes. And if you are in Christ, the full measure of God's wrath is poured out on him. Praise him for that. And if you are not, the full measure of God's wrath will be poured out on you. Fear him for that. So I just want to close with just a quick wrap up. Jesus' entire ministry is filled with restoration. He begins by restoring those who are healed and broken as a precursor 
It's what happens in the cross where the great restoration happens in the spiritual realm. What is done in Christ is already accomplished. That restoration is complete. It is finished. But also when he returns for the final restoration. New heavens, new earth. Glory forevermore with God's people in his presence. He is the Lord of restoration, past, present, and future. A couple things we see from Jesus here. He is fully man, and his emotions are very telling. He is full of righteous anger, his wrath toward the wicked. He is full of, full of grief, the hardness of hearts and the effects of the fall. He is full of, full of love and compassion for the broken and lost sheep. And he is full of grace and mercy to heal and restore through faith. I pray that you know that. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. What other name could ever come off of our lips in praise? How dare we look to anyone else for our comfort, for our peace, for our restoration? Lord, thank you for your work of redemption in us. Thank you for what you have done through Jesus Christ. Thank you that your wrath was poured out on him and not us. Thank you that you see us as righteous in your sight because of him. Lord, I pray that this would be an encouragement to your people this morning. We serve the living God who makes old things new, who restores that which is broken and who promises to restore all things. You are awesome. You are merciful. You are just. You are loving and compassionate. And your anger is totally justified, the anger that we deserve. And it is only by your grace that we have received your mercy. Such a merciful and loving God who would cover our sins and restore him to himself. This is the beauty of the gospel message. This is the message that we proclaim. And may we go forth from this, this room with your word ever on our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.